0: This is a dart of Brussels. So it's not of our new season, uh, long Brexit, as I've called it. As I said in the little trailer uh, for this season, we want to try and take a more rounded look at the changing relationship between the UK and the EU. So to give you kind of a sense of what we're thinking about, we've got a number of things going on that I think are setting us up for a period of potentially significant change or at least discussion about change in that relationship. So we're now here in December 2022. The UK left uh, two and a half years ago, nearly three years ago from the EU. We've got our the two treaties, the withdrawal agreement that regulated the uh, exit from the EU, and then the trade and the cooperation agreement that deals with the new post-membership relationship between the two sides. Now, those are both in place. They're both contested in different ways. There are various issues that are uh, at play and have been for a while. Most obviously, the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, within the withdrawal agreements, So we've got these frameworks that are set up and notionally are there on a semi-permanent basis. But we've got, I think, three or four things that are likely to produce change. Firstly, we've got a change of leadership. So we've got a shift from uh, Boris Johnson's time in office, which was very much characterised by a... uh, emotional uh, appeal to get Brexit done, which seemed to translate into an almost uh, visceral rejection of anything that looked like cooperation uh, with the EU or with, air quotes, Europe. Now firstly with Liz Truss, briefly, and then with Rishi Sunak, we've had uh, a shift in tone. So we have much warmer rhetoric, we have a willingness to be seem to be doing things together with our European partners to use that kind of language uh, most obviously the uh, attendance at the European political community meeting in Prague back in uh, the autumn by Liz Truss. but you know also Rishi Sunak as well has continued that you know cooperating on various things uh, not just on things like Ukraine but also on um, things that uh, relate to energy, to uh, cooperation with France on small boats, all these kind of things. So we've got some kind of change in rhetoric. We've got a Prime Minister who is uh, presumably now in post until the next general election. But that's the second big thing that's uh, important uh, about the next year or two, is that we have a general election coming. Uh, It has to be held by uh, late 2024. Uh, because that will be five years after the last general election. And you have to imagine that given the unpopularity of the Conservative Party in polling, that they will want to leave that as late as they can. Now that means that we've got a period of maybe two years in which Rishi Sunak is going to be doing all kinds of things to try and bolster his support internally and externally. Um, But as it stands, we have to assume that the most likely beneficiaries of that general election will be the Labour Party. So we need at some point to be thinking about what they intend to do, which is in all fairness not hugely different from current positions, but which will certainly mark a potential opening point for uh, new discussions with the EU. The EU itself also has uh, some changes that are coming down the line. We've got a general uh, European election in uh, summer of or early uh, summer of 2024 for the European Parliament, which will in turn produce a new Commission leadership later that year. So member states within the EU have been very much concerned with trying to put the relationship back on the rails. But one of the things that is evident is that whilst there's that willingness and a lot of rhetoric, you see it in the Commission and from National Capitals, to have things uh, working better, it's not always clear what it is that those different interests within the EU want and accept. You know, Where are the limits of the things that they will uh, work with the e- UK on? Now all of that suggests that there's still a a way to go on the European side as much as there is still a pressing need in the UK for, well, clarity about what the purpose of the exercise might be. One of the things that's been interesting for me as somebody who's worked in this field for an extended period is that now again we see more um, people talking about the need to have clarity about the strategy that the uk is trying to follow so there are things here which are in the air which are potentially coming together driven by internal and external factors to the uk but that's not all that's in the pipeline and this is why i think you know we're at a different phase two things worth stressing here. Firstly the treaties themselves are not static and stable. We have uh, provisions within uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol for a consent vote by late 2024 which means that uh, whilst we don't currently have uh, a Northern Ireland Executive we might have a situation where the uh, approval of the Protocol by uh, uh, MLAs in Belfast might well be uh, an issue uh, that uh, makes uh, the operation and the next steps in the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, more difficult. Likewise, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement has uh, a review uh, clause in it, so every five years there is to be a full review of its provisions, uh, and that's due in 2025. So at that point, there has to be some discussion uh, and negotiation between the two parties about that arm of the relationship. So the treaty framework that we have is going to be under close scrutiny uh, in the next two years as we move towards those kind of key elements. But beyond that, I think we also need to recognise that the UK is also made choices that are liable to produce some further difficulties. So, maybe here we should acknowledge that whilst Sunak has talked uh, more warmly about working with the EU and finding points of cooperation, that has also come with uh, an, a view that the uh, Legislative initiatives that his predecessors put in train uh, should continue. And here there are two key pieces of legislation that are of interest to us. Firstly, and probably most visibly, we have a Northern Ireland Protocol Bill that is currently making its way through Parliament and is uh, somewhere uh, between the two houses right now. But in January, uh, there is likely to be uh, more progress on that. Now, that bill uh, provides powers to the government to disapply pretty much all the major sections of the protocol unilaterally. Now, that's clearly not something that is allowed within international law. It is not agreed with the EU. And... Uh, is driven by uh, domestic pressures within the Conservative Party, to some extent by uh, pressure from the DUP, who've now made their participation in the Northern Ireland Executive Conditional on that bill becoming law and being put into effect. But clearly that legislation places the UK government on a collision course with the Commission and the Commission has been very clear as have member states and has uh, the US federal government that this is something which is going to be highly problematic. So even though the legislation merely provides the option for the government to disapply uh, those provisions should it feel that uh, they are uh, negative Uh, to Northern Ireland's interests, as it defines them, then uh, even though it doesn't have to use those powers, the very fact that they're on the statute book is going to be an issue. So we've got that one uh, collision point uh, heaving into view. But we've got another uh, point of tension which is going to be uh, around, which has only recently gained more interest, and that's on retained EU law. Now, this is the body of legislation that was on the statute books that uh, was converted into UK law uh, when the UK left. And it's you know, a lot of it is very technical, uh, procedural stuff that is there to support and sustain uh, day-to-day practice of government. So, as you know, when the UK left, it left in a state of compliance with the uh, requirements of membership. And in many cases, there's no real need for it to change its practice just to change its practice. But over the last two years, we've had more interest from factions of the Conservative Party to say, well, This is a symbol of how the EU continues to control our lives and is uh, pernicious and is something that we must be free of. And so we have now uh, a retained EU law bill, which is just starting out in Parliament, which says that uh, by uh, the end of 2023, uh, all of the remaining legislation, if it hasn't been accepted or recast into uh, native British law, then will automatically be sunsetted and be removed from the statute books. Now, that sounds, well, what does it sound? It sounds simple and logical that, you know, if you've left the EU, you should free yourself of its provisions. But as uh, this autumn has demonstrated, that is not a simple process. Firstly, we entirely sure how much legislation there actually is. The UK government maintains a a tracking website which identified about two and a half thousand pieces of legislation across government that were within these categories. Uh, Since membership ended back in 2020, uh, only about well what less than 20% have had anything actively done to them. And that includes maybe about 8% that have been repealed so often things like uh, provisions on agriculture or fisheries or transport policy, things that were run from uh, the EU, which have come back into the UK, and clearly you don't need the pieces of enabling legislation uh, that are there. But most of the rest has stayed in place, and the reason for that is partly because some of it is very useful and practical and there's no intention to change it, but also uh, because uh, there's a large body that civil servants simply haven't got to uh, have a proper look at. That was underlined uh, some weeks ago where the uh, Public Records uh, Office discovered another 1,400 pieces of legislation that had missed the uh, been missed in the initial trawl. So the danger here is that uh, the UK ends up sunsetting Uh, this legislation without even knowing what that legislation might be or what the impact might be. Now why does any of this matter for anyone outside of the UK? Well the simple point is that uh, part of the trade and cooperation agreement arrangements rely on convergence and alignment on various standards and regulations. So most obviously and most uh, inflexibly there is a commitment to what's called the level playing field, which you may remember from the uh, negotiations in 2020. Now, that level playing field said that both parties would uh, cooperate uh, to ensure that they stayed um, broadly in line with each other on things like environmental protection, workers' rights, other kinds of social questions. So they wouldn't try and undercut one another on those important Uh, in their own right uh, aspects. Now, what's not clear with the retained EU law uh, action that the UK is uh, on at the moment, is whether any of those provisions might be uh, compromised uh, by the removal of that uh, piece of legislation. So, this is technical, but it's something which contains the potential to be at least as difficult in procedural terms and negotiating terms as the Northern Ireland protocol issue itself. Now that's worth stressing because one of the real lessons that we've had over the last two years since the UK left is that membership and post-membership relationships are not static. That the desire to maintain a positive uh, relationship isn't simply about whether you reference each other in speeches and say nice things and, you know, uh, generally um, are pally. It's also about substantive actions. And at the moment, the UK is on a track to do some things which will have substantive impact on the relationship and negatively. So even though we're away from some of the, you know, more extreme rhetoric and... uh, kind of discourse that we had during the the Johnson period, it doesn't mean that things are necessarily any easier. So all of this leaves us then in a situation now where the next year is going to be problematic because of those incoming bills, uh, the Protocol Bill and the Retained EU Law Bill, where we've got the looming general election issues that are going to come into effect and then a bit beyond that we're going to have the issues around the reviews of the withdrawal agreement and the trade and cooperation agreement so what do we do about that how can we navigate our way through well i'm going to do three things and this podcast is part of a bigger set of work that I'm undertaking at the moment. So, one thing we want to do is we want to try and understand well better what actually happens. You know, what's the interaction that we actually get? You know, what cooperation exists on the ground? So, to take one example. We're seeing more cooperation on energy supply in the North Sea. So, the UK is rejoining uh, the North Sea uh, energy uh, group working with other literal states, uh, in order to coordinate things like the provision of offshore wind. So in the context of the Ukraine war, the disruption to energy supplies, the need to move to renewable energy in uh, the era of climate change, all of that makes logical sense. But until uh, we had Boris Johnson out of office, that wasn't actually on the table. That wasn't something that was willing to be pursued despite the obvious need. So we've got now not only the formal interactions that happen within the withdrawal agreement and the trade and cooperation agreement, but we also have other more ad hoc kind of arrangements on different policy areas. So we need to try and get more sense of that. But linked to that is recognition that actions are not the same as deeds. So we need to understand the discourse that's going on on both sides. So in the coming months, we'll talk a little bit more about how British and European politicians and civil servants frame the debates, frame the discourse that's going on uh you know what are the kinds of images that they're using what are the kinds of logics that they're displaying you know how do they try and sell that as they go forward but equally what we want to understand as well is the understandings that uh, these different individuals have so i'm going to be doing uh, some work to try and interview these people to get some better understanding about how they see the world, how they see the role of the EU and the UK and their relationship with each other, which in turn will help us to make sense of those kind of discourses that they uh, create and the actions that they take. So putting these things together, hopefully will give us a more rounded picture of where everyone is, where everyone wants to be, and what might be the barriers and the accelerators to getting there. Now to be clear, not trying here to say that a happy, shiny relationship is possible. But one of the things that's clear is that over time, and certainly post-membership, the interaction between the UK and the EU has become less. That there is less interaction on a structural basis. And the less that people talk with one another, the more opportunity there is for misunderstanding or for missed uh, opportunities to uh, find common ground. So part of this project is about well, just trying to help maintain those lines of communication. There are plenty of other people out there who do a really good job of trying to support that, but it never hurts to have someone else uh, trying to do it as well. So it may be that actually all of this highlights uh, the impossibility of finding a stable relationship or one that is going to satisfy everyone, which I think is pretty much inevitable. But I think the effort is something that is worthwhile. One question to wrap up this kind of opener is how can we make sense of things you know what is it that we're thinking about this is something I've been turning over in my mind because there's not necessarily an obvious kind of framework of understanding that we can apply here because one of the things that's been clear over the last years is that you know we could take a a rational uh, utility optimizing kind of approach we could say well look you know just let's look at the numbers the obvious thing, or the logical thing to do, is this and that and something else. And one of the things that's been very clear in the Brexit debate, particularly in the UK, is that rational calculation is not the most useful way of looking at things. In purely economic terms, Brexit is not a logical choice for the British government to pursue. It imposes extra costs on British industry. That in terms of transition to uh, a post membership uh, relationship and also static costs that you know trade with what remains the largest uh, block of uh, export markets uh, is now more difficult more expensive and slower but evidently that is not all that's going on here How do we measure things like the notion of taking back control, the notion of borders and immigration, the freedom to make choices that are British choices rather than ones that have to be coordinated and compromised with, uh, with European partners. So I think we have to acknowledge that taking a rationalist kind of approach is not going to be the most useful kind of approach here. Instead, we have to take something that is a bit more subjective, a bit more accommodating, and which recognises the different uh, understandings that people have, which is precisely why we're doing these different elements together. So, if I can be mildly pretentious for a bit, let's uh, throw in a bit of Bourdieu, uh, because why not? Bourdieu was known for many things, uh, apart from being uh, a complicated French philosopher. But one idea that I found useful in the past is the notion of habitus. So this isn't Bourdieu's own idea, but he, he really ran with it. And what he tries to do is say, well, you know, if we want to make sense of a situation, there are three levels or three elements that we might consider. So first of all, he says, well, let's look at positions. Where are people where are actors in society in a social field? You know that we create this space of social interaction, and within that, we can say, well, okay, this person is like this, that person is like that, that person is like something else. You know, and these are the things they do. So again, you know, it's about looking at the kind of the, the substantive content of actors. But what Bourdieu says is as well as that, there is also a disposition that actors have. So it's about their understandings of the world, their understandings of society, their understandings of what they're trying to achieve in all of this. And those are different from but related to the positions that people have. So I might think about being... Uh, acting in a particular way because it makes sense in this particular social field but my disposition is actually to do something slightly different so uh you know it's uh it's not particularly a political kind of concept but it's uh, helpful to think a bit about you know that disposition against the position and, you know it's why people sometimes are a bit annoying that you know what they think and what they do are not always the same so understanding that Disjuncture is uh, helpful. And finally, Bourdieu says, well, we also need to think about transitions. That why does change happen? That society is not static, social interaction is not static. So we should also have an understanding about change within the system. So if you like, this is more procedural than the kind of the, the static elements of positions and dispositions but recognises that those positions and dispositions in different ways move and change over time. So quite how we apply that in this particular case is something that we'll come back to. Uh, And it may be that we decide that it's not the most useful model, but it's certainly a starting point because one of the things that's clear is that the current situation between the UK and the EU isn't stable, it's internally inconsistent, it contains pressures and forces and actions which uh, are going to provide further pressure that will disrupt that situation. We've got political actors who want still some very different things. Some of those are rather marginal in political terms, but there is also clearly uh, a pressure on the British government that is not inconsiderable, which continues to try the force. That's why we've got the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill and the retained EU law bill still making their way through Parliament. It's probably not what Rishi Sunak is most keen to do, but he clearly feels that he doesn't have the political capital to turn against that. So, as we move into a new phase of Brexit, that will take a very long time, far longer than the life of this podcast to uh, resolve, we might think about those different elements as we go forward. Hopefully that gives you a sense of where we are right now and gives you some ideas that we're going to pick up in future episodes. But for now, it's very nice to uh, have you back. And if there are things you particularly want me to discuss, please do just drop a comment into our website, which is www.adietofbrussels.com. Until next time, I shall say goodbye.